Good morning. We're in Exodus chapter 14 and 15. 15 is going to become our responsive reading as we go through this account in chapter 14, which is pivotal to all of Israel's history and has its application for us. So would you stand? I'm going to read just uh, starting in chapter 13, verse 17, go through four verses in chapter 14. We'll pray and then uh, ask the Lord to bless us this morning through his word. So in Exodus 13, verse 17, running start from our last study. It came to pass when Pharaoh had let the, the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, that would have been the shorter route. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Chapter 14. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Piharath, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So, Father, we thank you again for giving to us the abundance that we have of your word. And we're thankful, Lord, that Jesus came. We love you, Lord. We, we just want to give our attention to you and speak into our hearts through your word, life. We ask, Lord, that you take the things I prepared, bless them, break them, feed us. We're hungry. We want to know you. We want to grow in our faith in you. We want to walk by faith, continuing to put one foot in front of the other, in trusting that you do lead us and that you will lead us and that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly about all that we ask or think. So please bless this time. We ask, Lord, also, if there's anyone watching, anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, you know them intimately and perfectly. You know everything that's gone on. You love them. You died for them. And you desire that they would respond to you with hearts humbled before you in confessing in their need for you. And then, Lord, through that, you would save them and give them eternal life. That's our prayer. So please, bless this time in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can be seated. So in Exodus chapter 13 through 18, it's a section outlined. This is where God said, I will be your God. Last time we looked at God, our strength. This morning, God, glorious in power. I want to begin by reading a, a quote from a, a, a commentary by A.W. Pink. Some of you know who he is, some of you don't. I'm going to read a little bit of his, of his uh, commentary. I want to interject my own scriptures, and then we'll go over, uh, we'll quote some more. So here we go. In this lesson, this is A.W. Pink, we are considering one of the most remarkable miracles recorded in the Old Testament Certainly the most remarkable in connection with the history of Israel. From this point onwards, whenever the servants of God would remind the people of the Lord's power and greatness, reference is almost always made to what he wrought for them at the Red Sea. For example, in 800 years afterward, the Lord said through Isaiah, 
I am the Lord your God and divided the sea whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. Nahum, the prophet Nahum, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. And by the way, the children of Israel went through on dry ground. Not a drop of God's judgment touched them. And the clouds of his feet, he rebukes it, makes it dry, and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. When the Lord renewed his promise as they came into the land, he takes, Joshua takes them back to this time and says this in Joshua 24. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Nehemiah, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Micah, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. It was this notable event that when they came into the promised land under Joshua in chapter 2, this is referred to and referenced as the thing that was a game changer when the people in the promised land that God was going to be giving to the, to the Israelites heard of it. Verse 10, we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for, when, for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites and who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, what God did, our hearts melted Neither did there remain any courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And may the Lord be able to say that through our witness. He is Lord. So he, uh, Pink continues. The miracle of the Red Sea occupies a similar place in the Old Testament scriptures as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ does in the New. It is appealed to as a standard of measurement as a supreme demonstration of God's power. Note that. Take note of that. Take heart for that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the event that stumbles many, but others who are stumbled by it and research it realize it's true, it happened, and that is the crux of the, of the Christian faith. So, Romans 1. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, this is the gospel, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God, there it is, with power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, Paul said that we are of all men most to be pitied. If he died and never rose again, there is no Christian faith. It is the event that was led up to all through history, Israel being the one that birthed, as we're going to be celebrating, the Savior into the world. Ephesians. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name in his name, not only in this age, but also in the ages. He is Lord. He is King of kings. He's not only raised from the dead, he's ascended in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, and he's waiting to come back. And we're waiting for him to come back. This is the power of God. So, little wonder, he continues, pink, then that each generation of infidels has directed special attacks against this miracle. Now, really, the resurrection has been attacked. It will always be attacked. The exodus has also been attacked as not being, it's a fable or it's some kind of allegory. No, it happened. 
Okay. But to the Christian, miracles occasion no difficulty. The great difference between faith and unbelief is that one brings in God and the other shuts him out. With God, all things are possible. Would you say amen? I'm going to have you say amen in a moment too. But bringing God and supernatural displays of power are to be expected, unquote. So the very first verse in the Bible should settle the issue. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. Now, Jeremiah refers to this when he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. And we should make this the prelude to our prayers. If God did that, then he goes on and says, There's nothing too hard for you. And then the Lord says, Behold, verse 27, I am the Lord. Listen, is there anything too hard for me? So the deal is, a miracle is nothing for God because God made everything. Everything out of nothing. Isn't that fantastic? You talk about God, God glorious in power. It's magnificent. The Psalms, it says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars that you, will, that you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of? You start to get this idea that it is so vast and so incredible. And here's me, this little, like, and yet God's work, his miracle, his resurrection was for me. And for you. That's God glorious in power. Glorious in holiness. Says he has triumphed gloriously in the song that we'll be doing a responsive reading to. So here, if God is fighting against us, it should cause great fear. It should. But if God's power is fighting for us, it should cease all fears. And we're learning, this morning, I'm just going to be sharing a few things on fear. Because we are being, if allowed, manipulated by fear. And we, as those of faith in God's glorious power, in God triumphing gloriously, we have to come back to the event of the empty tomb, which takes us back to the event of deliverance from Egypt, which was a miraculous thing that God did against all odds, as we'll see. So God is, God is for us, not against us. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. So as we get into this story, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Harath, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. In other words, they don't know what to do now. They're hemmed in. They're, it's like this impossible situation. I got them. Now, this whole thing, for many, many years, there have been, and still are, very involved research in trying to determine the actual route that was taken out of Egypt. I would offer you this map, and we'll leave it to you to search it out. This is uh, uh, Joel Richardson has been here several times because they're researching this. He is himself. I would offer to you this map. I'll let you research that out. Now, also, some evidence has been discovered supposedly confirming two persons who are mentioned in this narrative. I offer you them, and you leave you to search it out. <laughs> this is Pharaoh, and this is Moses, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> so here's the deal. God is not done with Pharaoh yet. And it's incredible that he isn't. But he is long-suffering with him. 
So I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So it's becoming now, it's coming down to the final judgment in the life of this man who rebelled against God, would not listen to God, refused to obey God. And God gave him opportunity, opportunity, and his heart hardened, his heart hardened. And then God said, basically allowed him to go the way of his own heart. That's a, that's a sobering thought. But that's what happened. You would think he would have given up by now. But listen, what we're seeing in Pharaoh, we also have issues many times in the hardening of our hearts to God. And it is a striking thing to encounter the hard heart, even our own. So what we need is to encounter a holy God. What we need is an encounter with the living God. Because without that, our hearts would not be changed. But even when that happens, Pharaoh is an example of someone who refused over time and time and time again to humble himself under the mighty hand of God that God then might have exalted. So Jesus put it this way. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. You fall on God. You fall into his arms. There's a breaking that takes place that is so healing and so wholesome and so holy. But Jesus wants to say, on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. It's falling on Pharaoh. Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And indeed it is. So, God's final blow against Pharaoh begins with what seems like a big miscalculation. And Pharaoh's watching his spies, whoever it was, is watching his thing and saying, hey, <laughs> they're hemmed in. You got mountains on the right, mountains on the left. You got the Red Sea before them. I got them. And may I stop for a moment and just say, life is like that. You might feel hemmed in on one side or the other, and before you, there's nothing to do. And it's as though God led me into this trap. Never the truth. Pharaoh said they're bewildered. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what's happening. Have you ever feel like that? What's going on here? But it tells me that God is immeasurably wise in leading us to the places he does for his glory. Interesting note that the meanings of these places, Piharath, the place of liberty, Migdal, a tower, a fortress, Baal Zavon, the Lord who watches over, a different Lord. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital The Lord watches over when the enemy would seek to rob, kill, and destroy. So Pharaoh's looking and said, hey, easy pickings, got him trapped. So he starts, here we go. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, verse 5, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants. Now you think, Really? I mean, the servants were the ones saying, you know what, just let them go because they've caused so many problems. They're destroying our, our land. But now, here it is, that hard heart. Turned against the people and they said, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made, this, he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. 
I mean, this is the cream of the crop. This is a powerful army. It's going to thunder the, the, the ground. 600 chariots with master drivers, his whole army. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with, with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh. His horsemen and his army overtook them, camping by the sea of Piharoth before Baal-Zephon. How would you feel? Now, check this out. Six times in Exodus, it talks about God's army. And you know what they were made up of? Slaves. They didn't have chariots, didn't have weapons, but they had God. That's his army, six times. His army is slaves redeemed by the sacrifice of a lamb. Now being led by a prophesied prophet, Moses. And all he's got is a rod. And you got this other army. <laughs> six times. I mean, how would you feel? But let me, let me apply this how I would feel. I would feel many times like what I feel like right now in our country. God is very patient. And sometimes I wish he wasn't. Now with me, obviously I want him patient. <laughs> but I look at the ones that are rumbling the ground and coming after the Christian, coming after our faith, coming after our freedom. I go, hold on a second, hold on a second. I'm saying we need to hold on a second with our eyes on God. His glorious power so we might feel like we're getting hemmed in. Mountains on the right, mountains on the left. See, what are we going to do? What are you doing? And we'll see that in a moment. What's happening here? Did we follow? See, this whole thing was, seemed like a miscalculation on the part of Moses. Not at all. When Sennacherib, king of Assyria, boasted that he was going to destroy Jerusalem, Hezekiah, the king, hears about this thing gets a letter, spreads it out before the Lord, and you know what he did? He prayed. He prayed. So in 2 Kings, Sennacherib saying, do not listen to Hezekiah. Don't listen to your king, lest he persuade you, saying what? The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the living king of Assyria, the hand of the, of the king of Assyria? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their country from my hand? This is Sennacherib boasting, taunting them that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. 2 Kings 19, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Now that is a pathetic statement. But to actually, in some of the ways in which I responded, it's almost like I believe that. God's deceived me. No, he hasn't. He, God is the, will never deceive us, but he will deliver us. So he's deceiving you. Jerusalem shall not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. And Hezekiah received, this is beautiful, it's beautiful, it's powerful. It's, it, it outmaneuvers every army that may be against us. He receives the letter, he gets it, he receives it, here's what's going on. He read it, so he knew it, he understood it, he, this is exactly what's being said. 
and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. There's no more powerful thing against all the force than to go up to God and say, here it is. That's what's going on in my life. This is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm facing. It feels like innumerable odds that are, are I'm, I'm, I, I, you know how that is, right? We don't know how to pray to groanings that cannot be uttered. Up, up. Second Kings 19. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, I have heard. Wow. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. So we need to hear the word of the Lord. Whoever, whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? In other words, let the Lord speak to us and through us to them. They are fighting God, not us. And so, this is the word which the Lord has spoken. Whom have you reproached about? Against whom have you raised your voices? Against the Holy One of Israel. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And those strongholds are the way that I'm thinking. And God comes and says to me, you're not thinking correctly. You need a correction in your thinking. See, the battle takes place in the mind. What I'm thinking. That's why we got to load it up. Say it again. Load it up, baby. You talk about loading the guns. No, loading our minds with the word of God and allowing him to speak to us and knowing that through our lives he will be speaking. Though it seems not. And so because you rage against me, your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. And it came to pass on a certain night, one night everything changed, that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people, when people arose early in the morning, there were, there, there were the corpses all dead. The wage of sin is death. You fight against God, you lose. We as believers, his ragtag army of redeemed slaves who lift up our voice to God, who listen to his word, we've, we're loaded, <laughs> loaded for the battle, filled with the spirit. Job challenged God to a hearing in court. And God testified to Job with these words. Have you an arm like God? See, we need this sort of sensitive rebuke. Have you an arm like God? Or can you humble with a voice like his? Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble them. Look on everyone who is proud and bring them low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind, blind, bind their faces in the hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. But you look at these things God's saying to Job. You, you, know, you, have no, you can't do anything about that. And there's that gentle rebuke in art to art. God is glorious in power. If we take him to court, he wins. It's not that God's afraid of our questions. He's not. But through the questions come the answer very simply. We can't do that. It's not in our power. We might try all kinds of different ways, but the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I can get as mad as I can, and I can get pretty mad. 
And when things going on, things we're facing, I can get pretty mad. And to wake up to this understanding that I can get as mad as I can and actually make matters worse. When I bring it and spread it before the Lord and I pray and God hears and through those things I'm trusting him as we'll see in this. In Acts, another passage, Gamaliel's advice to the Sanhedrin concerning the preaching of the gospel. He said to them, and now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, the apostles, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing, but if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you be found to fight against God. I don't want to be found fighting against God. I'll tell you, the world doesn't mind doing that. Paul warned the Corinthians through the Israel's history of idolatry against, an ex- and, and this is an example. Or do, you, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So, simple application. May we not make the same blunder as Pharaoh did in not humbling ourselves before the Lord. Hard heart is something that, that can happen and does happen. May the Lord help us to humble ourselves before him that he may exalt us in due time. Pharaoh continued hard in his heart. Hebrews says this, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray. Here's the problem, in their heart. And they have not known, second problem, they have not known my ways. That's what happened. If you don't have his ways and through the word of God, then it's going to begin to impact the heart. So I swore in wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And I'll tell you, I can testify, and I think you can with me. When we get in those places where it seems like we're hemmed in and God led us into a trap, That's where we need to stop and say, hold on a second. That's not how God does it. That's not what God's doing in your life, in my life. And so this blunder, the default setting of the old nature is sin and self. That's the setting. That's what's going to happen. We're going to gravitate toward it as the children of Israel. If I rebel against God's sovereign authority over all, my heart will harden. If a child rebels against his or her God-given parental rights, or authority, the heart becomes hard. That's why Proverbs is filled with scriptures to moms and dads, chasten, discipline your child. Example, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Doesn't let it go. And that is a, that can wear you out. <laughs> But you've got to do it. Chasten your son while, he's, while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. There's a, this is a massive life study to any parent. But you know from the experience, if these things are not dealt with, the heart gets harder and the child gets more rebellious. It's the default setting. If you as an employee are rebelling against your boss, your heart will harden. I'm not saying at all in that that the boss isn't incorrect and not a bad boss. 
But in the scriptures, what it tells me is authority is extremely important to the development of a heart that's tender toward God. He uses all these things as a means of bringing us to a place before God of humility. If you as a citizen, I as a citizen, are rejecting, listen, righteous laws, our hearts become hardened. And we are seeing the hardness of hearts in our streets all over the place. It's lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. If I'm rebelling against God's word, my heart will become hard. If I, as an offender, am refusing to repent, my heart will harden. If I, as the offended, refuse to forgive, my heart will harden. If I, one example of many areas of sin, if I, if you refuse to abstain from sexual immorality, your heart will harden. And it has a little leaven, leavens a whole lump. And you can take any area of God's commandments. I call them fences of love. God said, do not, do not. If I do, jump over the fence and begin wandering in the wilderness of sin, it will be a hardening of the heart in listening to God and humbling myself before him. So when we humble ourselves, just a couple of scriptures that came up, I'll give them to you rapidly. God is able to make all grace abound to me. God is for me, not against me. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Say it. Amen. Jude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion, and here it is, power, both now and forever. And everyone said again, amen. That is what we're talking about as far as God's glorious power in our lives. The power over a hard and hardening heart. If God's power is fighting against us, it should cause great fear. If God's power is fighting for us, it should cease all fear. Except the fear of God. Pharaoh's armies came caused tremendous fear among the Israelites. Let's read it, verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there was no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should, we should die in the wilderness. Now, this is kind of like, we're hindsight looking at this thing, but they're in the midst of it. And sometimes these same utterances come out in application to what we experience. So their fear kept them focused on enemy chariots which would be, militarily speaking, today's tanks and all the other warfare. Their fear kept their eyes earthbound. Oh, they cried out to the Lord, but then they immediately went to Moses, their leader. And that fear led to rash, angry, and untrue statements directed at Moses. And really the problem was them. 
in fear, we cry out to the Lord immediately, <laughs> but don't turn, turn to the Lord steadfastly. We start looking for other places to put the problem, when really the problem is me before the Lord. We cry out and fear focus, laser, we get a laser focus on the wrong things. And I can testify again all through this. That has happened in the realm of what we've been doing. In fact, I was writing an email this week and I said, I thought, man, 2021 feels like 10 years long. I just wrote this email back in October of 2020. So it's been less, you know, maybe a year. Thinking, man, how much stuff has gone on. And I'm battling with these focuses, and they can become so laser-focused that it takes my eyes off the Lord. It keeps my eyes earthbound. It keeps my eyes in the temporal things of this world. Moses. Because there's no graves in Egypt. Now, it's interesting in Egypt, three-fourths of their land was available for grave sites. They had this preoccupation with death. And so the pyramids are a good example of just how preoccupied. I mean, you got these things that are bigger than whatever. And there's one, as far as I know, there's one body in there. It's made for this thinking. I don't know what I'm thinking, but all the pyramids are nothing but big tombs. Big monuments to the death of man. You've taken us away to die. Why have you dealt so with us? So this, sorry, this thing they're saying to Moses, had, how had Moses dealt with them? I'm going to tell you, not like I would have. <laughs> I mean, he didn't hand in his resignation until 40 years later. And he's putting up with this stuff that they're saying all the way through it. They were quite happy to follow him out of Egypt. But now, feeling hemmed in, they start reverting back. I told you so, Moses. I mean, we told you we'd rather be in Egypt. We told you all these things. When they, you know, the Lord never forces anyone to follow him. There's the offer to come, follow me. Moses was God's leader who went out with them. Is this the word we told in Egypt? You know, we should have stayed there. It's like the disciples saying on the boat, don't you care that we perish? How many of you have said that? Maybe not in those words. Lord, what's going on here? Their fear, listen, it limited any opportunity to human potential, human possibility, human ability. So you have two possibilities. They're telling Moses. We, sh we could have stayed in Egypt alive or die here. We could have been serving them in Egypt or die here. So as far as they were concerned, Moses led them into a death trap. Their fear culminated in, the, in despairing of life itself. It would have been better that we just died. So here's the beautiful thing in, in this picture that I want you to see and think about. All of their fears, all of the attacks, everything that was going on for Moses, it provoked him in his faith. 
And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation, Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, shall, you shall see no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? That's just interesting. So was Moses without fear? Not at all. He had fears that he was dealing with. He cries out to God and God and says, God, do something. And, Mo, and God says to Moses, no, you do something. So what did he say? It seems to me that God loves these strategic situations that he puts us in our lives. Where he deliberately and strategically brings us to the end of our own resources. What are you going to do? And things can seem hopeless, and we're crying out. We say, Moses, we're God, and then Moses, and this, that. And we're all over there. We're scattered, as it were, in our thinking, our thoughts, because we no longer have our eyes on God. But Moses, I believe, is provoked here, not without his own fears, not without his own frustrations, not without going, what is going on? But he says to the people, do not be afraid. He says, stand still and see the salvation of God, which he will accomplish for you. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. So he's basically, hey, just stop the chatter. This is what God told me. And so he realized that God had to do something. If what he'd been hearing all the way along was true, God has to do something here. Now, I don't know what he's going to do. He was in his heart crying out to the Lord, but then the Lord says, okay, do something. So what is God calling Moses to do? It's very simple. Lead. Lead. And I believe with all my heart that God has a sphere of influence for each and every one person in this room and watching to lead. You say, hold on a second. This is what God said. And that it would provoke our faith in God, not against other leadership or whatever, but in God. Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Lead. Now, here's what I believe I've learned, if nothing else, through this pandemic. People need encouragement. Encouragement is leadership. I don't care who it is in your life. There's not a person, a soul that you meet that does not need to be encouraged. Moses, I think, is seeking to encourage them as well as himself. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of God. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Do you believe that this morning? Do not be afraid. Stand still. Just stop a moment and see the salvation of God, which he will accomplish for you. That's what he promised. He will fight for you. So what I, for myself, I just said, stop the chatter. Stop the direct, the indirect reflection or deflecting of blame on this, that, and the other and get, your eyes on, get my eyes on the Lord. Provoke me to believe that God 
will do something and encourage people all along the way. Lift up your rod, so it says, but lift up your rod, God to Moses, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I will harden, and he will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will give honor, gain honor over Pharaoh, over all his armies, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then, so whatever you're, the rumblings you're hearing, don't worry about it. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So God's saying, you cried out to me? Don't stop doing that, but get going. Get going. Stay moving at my commands. Don't let fear paralyze you. On Friday, I received an email, a text actually, from my good pastor friend, Calvary Chapel pastor friend, Tom Blumberg, who's in Bellingham. And he sent this video, it was about 12 minutes long, of what's going on in San Jose, California. And then if you don't know this story, what's going on, but Calvary Chapel, San Jose, the pastor is Mike, Mike McClure, who's the son of Don McClure, who founded it, been in Calvary for a long time. To date, he has $3.8 million of fines levied against him. He has over $100,000 against him personally. He was at the conference that we were at, uh, we just went to down in uh, Golden Bar, California, at Raul Reese's church. He stood and talked to us about what's going on. And his means of dealing with this thing, it just so struck me. He just said, God has called me to pastor, to shepherd his people. Now, on the witness stand, he's talking about God and the testimony of his life. Has, does he have fears? You bet he does, and he readily admits that. But he's going to do what God called him to do. And he's been doing that. And so, in fact, on this video, it says, it's he said something like, it is incredible what's going on in San Jose, California. That is not going on in communist Russia and North Korea, where the churches are open and have been. And so it's something like, you know, we're more communist than them. And if you want that video, I'll send it to you. I sent it out to the ABCD group. And I was just saying, we got to, you know, if nothing else, we got to pray. I asked Rick to come, and just to come and talk about, listen, brothers and sisters, Lord, we are coming to these places in our country's nation, history, our nation's history. It is going to be challenging us, provoking us in our faith. What are we going to do? And God said to him, lift up your rod and stretch out your hand. Now, in the midst of all the noise that's going on, Moses wasn't told, but God didn't say, get the megaphone and start telling them. Raise up your hand, the rod that I've given to you. And that rod to me represents, for this morning's purposes, the sphere of influence in your life and the people that are looking for you, to you for leadership. Are you going to believe God and just stand and raise that, that rod and say, we're going forward because God's going to deliver us. And we need leadership of this, form, of this shape, it, whether it's our children or our extended family or our workplace, to see, I am not going to give in to these fears God hasn't brought me this place 
to destroy me. He hasn't brought our nation to this point to destroy us. I hope, and I pray, and I hope, I, I pray for that. But what are we going to do? Get that rod up in the air. You know, they, could, they might not be able to hear Moses, but they can see he's going forward with God. They can see what God's doing through his provoked to faith, that we believe what we believe. We believe the gospel. We believe we're founded under God. We believe we have a constitution that's ours by giving us. And as Rick would say, we believe that America was a gift of God given to the world. And the things that are given to us were to steward them and say, God, you brought us to this place. Raise it up and lead. I see this to myself more than any of you here. Lead. Put up the arm. In this video, Pastor Mike quotes from 2 Timothy. But know this, 2 Timothy 3. But know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. And then he gives this list that you could take every one of them and apply it to exactly what we see has happened to the hardening of the heart of our nation. And it begins with this. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unloving, unmerciful, unholy, whatever it is, I lost my, yeah. Without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying his power. And from such people, Paul tells Timothy, just turn away. Get your eyes off of that. And then he says in verse 10, but you, Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. Persecution happened at Antioch and Iconium at Lister. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, here it is, brothers and sisters, out of them all, the Lord delivered me, and the Lord will deliver me. And we know that anyone that's going to live God in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a part of the deal. It's a part of raising the rod. It's a part of leadership. It's a part of what I'm doing. And the leadership... For you in your sphere of influence, whatever that is, raise up the rod, brothers and sisters. We're going forward with God. Not without. We're going forward with our eyes on God. And Mike McClure is himself facing many fears. He says, I'm going forward. I'm called to shepherd people. I'm called to care for people, which we all are. Paul the apostle lived in perilous times. He was very honest about his fears. Fears without, and all those he talks about to the Corinthians. Isaiah lived in perilous times. And I wanted to share these two because as I was preparing this, I thought of these verses. Now, if you know the book of Isaiah, it's 66 chapters. It's a mini Bible. You take the first 39 and they apply to the Old Testament, those 39 books in the Old Testament. You take the beginning of chapter 40 and it's the glory of God and it sort of dovetails with the New Testament. And so in chapter 41, he says, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Over and over again, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I, the Lord, who will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. God was going to help me. He's going to help you. He's not saying, well, buck up and get it done. Raise the rod and don't. No, he's saying, I will help you. Fear not, (laughs) worm Jacob. Fear not, worm, Kevin. You men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord. 
And your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who found, formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Fear not, I am with you. Would you take those to heart this morning with me and just say, okay, up goes the rod. We're going forward with the Lord because this is what God has promised to me. The Lord then positions himself between Pharaoh's army and his people. Verse 19, the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And a pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. Basically what he's saying is God's saying, I got your back. I got your back. I'm going to protect you and keep you all along the way. Pharaoh's armies, all their power had no way to get to the people of God. And brothers and sisters in the Lord, he will keep us. He will keep us. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I know this is going to be true when we get to glory, but right now, we can look back, and surely, goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. And with God at that place of glorious power and glorious holiness and victorious God in my life, those are the things I might... I begin to, they begin to go strangely dim because God is for. That's the provoking of my faith in God because of the circumstances, not in spite of them. Because of the hemmed inness, not in spite of it. That's what he's doing. And so Timothy said, Paul told Timothy, and the Lord would deliver every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. Paul said that to Timothy. See, that's a provoking of faith in our hearts that comes because of circumstances that seem impossible. Are we going to raise the rod? Are we going to believe God? Are we going to be encouraged and encouraging others? So fear paralyzes. So pray and lead and encourage and stretch out your hand in your spheres of influence. So he stretched out his hand. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and to the left. What was a wall to them was the destruction of Egypt. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's chariots, horses, chariots, and horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians, and he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. I'm sorry, I would have posed so. I mean, how, do you ever try and ride a chariot without any wheels? <laughs> and he took off their chariot wheels. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them and against the Egyptians. So the, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. So they're on the other side. Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots, and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry ground, dry land in the midst of the sea. And the waters were walled to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, put yourself on the other side of that. And here you are looking at what just happened. You're going, I can't believe what just happened. <laughs> right? Look what just happened. Here we are 
Not a drop of water, safe on the other side, and we can't even see the army. It's gone. It's perished. It's buried. Done. That, my friend, should provoke us to faith. There's no guessing when these things that God did are for our benefit and example. We come back to the cross and the resurrection. Pharaoh's chariots and his army cast into the sea. What does this, what, what example is this for us? If nothing else, it's a picture of baptism. Paul talks about this. That when we came to Christ and God led us out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed us to himself, we began this journey. The first thing was going through this incredible experience. Seems like it's what just happened wasn't worth it to the children of Israel. And yet God delivered them through the water. And baptism is that picture of when I came to Christ and I was redeemed, then I make my public testimony. The old life is gone. Egypt is buried. And I'm standing on the other side of that going, wow, what did God just do? That's what he did. That's what happened. He got, we are a new creation in Christ. The old things are passed away. All things become new. And now they're on this new adventure, this new venture of faith, if you will, in the wilderness, which is a, pl- a place where God led them through the wilderness. It was a little longer than it should have been, but it was what it was. And we have these legitimate experiences in the wilderness for lessons to our faith being provoked to believe God and walk steadfastly with Him and learn from these things. And so... As we close, I would like to, to close with by, by responsive reading in how they responded. And I believe when we came to that place of salvation, redemption, and then baptism that we understand symbolizes. And by the way, last week we called to bat, we, we would say it again to you. If, you, if you're here and you've not been baptized, it's an important obedience to God because it's a picture of this experience in the children of Israel where your life, This is the power of God. Your life, your old life of sin and self and death was buried. The enemy has no power over that in your life anymore. Buried. And you wound up on the other side and you're looking back and go, wow, what did God just do? Let me tell you what he just did. He buried your old life. He took care of it. He wiped it out. He wiped out the work of the devil, all those things against us. He wiped it out in one fell swoop at the cross and then through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So would you stand with me? And I'm going to read the first and odd verses. We're going to ask if you would, I'm going to ask if you would read the second. And then when we get to that last one, it's an odd verse. Odd in the sense of it's 21. <laughs> but I, I'm, going to, we're going to, I'm going to say that, but then I want to be saying that together a couple of times. And I might even stop you in the midst of this to say it again. Here we go. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse that <laughs> its rider has thrown into the sea. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. The 
And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose up against you. You sent forth your wrath and consumed them like stubble. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. <laughs> Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Say it again. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Miriam answered, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Say it. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. So let me close. We're going to sing this song. This, this wilderness journey of lessons from God is to prepare us for his habitation. It's to prepare us for his kingdom. We're not here learning how to play harps on a cloud. We are here as his people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And he wants to teach us and instruct us because he's preparing us for our responsibilities in his kingdom. And the things that he's doing in your life and my life, the things of being hemmed in, and all those things, God is preparing us for a future kingdom in which we will, Revelation, kings and priests will rule with us. God has a plan and a purpose that is far beyond 70 or 80 years of living in this crazy world. He's preparing us for his heavenly kingdom, his habitation. Amen. So as we sing this song, would you, as best as you can, worship God Tell as we sing this song? Because this is an awesome song. And I, I appreciate, as I said to Sophia, this is what I'm doing. And, you, and she got the perfect song, I think. What do you think? Yeah, okay. He knows. <laughs> <laughs>